you can't be thinking only about your in-year profits if your veterinary professionals are walking out the door because they can't deal with the stress anymore. From Batex International, this is Blood Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by one of the most senior vets in the US, Dr. Molly McAllister. Molly graduated from Oregon State Vet School in 2004, holds a BA in biology and a master's in public health. After a brief stint in equine practice, she worked as a GP vet in Portland before life got tough and circumstances took her in an entirely different but retrospectively serendipitous direction. It was 2009 when she began work within the Mars Pet Care family, joining as a scientific services vet until her move to Banfield in 2014. Molly was initially appointed as director of research, a role where among other things she was responsible for producing the Banfield State of the Pet Health Report, a fascinating insight into the disease incidents derived from an analysis of more than 3 million health visits to Banfield practices each year. Various other roles followed where Molly's triple love of people, data and medicine became evident, allowing her to contribute to or drive many important initiatives within Banfield and beyond. In 2019, she was appointed the Chief Medical Officer and Senior Vice President, a role where she drives strategy and organization of the veterinary teams whilst being accountable for the medical quality standard across the organization. Just before we jump into the episode, a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the Vetex Thrive Professional Skills Course for Vets. If you're working in practice and clients or colleagues are making you miserable, then I have good news and bad news. The bad news first is you're likely contributing to many of your problems. The good news is you're also 100% in control of changing things and having a great career. You're missing some skills and they're not clinical. Enter Thrive, a race accredited professional skills training course where members receive instruction, toolkits, and mentoring support to ensure success. Membership's available for a small monthly fee where you can join hundreds of other vets who've changed their careers for the better. Learn more and enroll at vetxinternational.com forward slash thrive today and receive 10% off by using the promo code podcast. Now back to the show. If all you knew about Molly was our title, you might feel quite intimidated. Will you be wrong? Molly is certainly driven and ambitious, but she's also compassionate, humble, and utterly determined to leave her bit of the world better than she found it. She's carved out her career driven by a sense of purpose and a profound awareness that there is only one life. Ready to hear more? I thought so. Without further ado, let's get into this conversation with one of my new favorite people in veterinary medicine, Dr. Molly McAllister. Dr. Molly McAllister, welcome to Blunt Dissection. Thank you, Dr. Dave Nichols. So glad to be here. First question, it's always the big questions straight away. McAllister's a very Scottish sounding name. Tell me more. Have you like got Scottish heritage or am I about to be disappointed? <laughs> well, I've engaged in this conversation with several people. It is technically Scotch-Irish. That blows up a whole conversation about who am I really? But yes, I have family. I have Scottish family and stick proudly to my McAllister heritage for sure. I like that. It's actually, it fits perfectly. You've got the, the Molly, which I always mm-hmm. think of Molly Malone, which yeah, is very Irish. Yeah. And the song, and then McAllister's you know, I, very Scottish. My, my name throughout my life has inspired one of two things, either Molly McAllister, that's a great, you know, Scottish sounding name, or Molly, that's my dog's name. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great name. I have a bit of name envy. I'm not not going to lie there. You have got a far more Scottish sounding name than I have. So, <laughs> so there you go. Well done. Now we're here because I'm actually, I'm very fascinated and we have the guests from a broad range of, or a broad spectrum of 
the veterinary community, the, the broad, rich veterinary church, as it were. I'm always keen to interview people who I think represent the profession and also just highlight some of the ways that careers can take people to sprinkle a little bit of magic fairy dust. It's safe to say your career has taken you to quite an interesting, and I, I don't know if it would make you feel uncomfortable. I was going to say quite a lofty position or quite a, mm. a sort of galactic sort of level position inside the, <laughs> no pun intended, that was actually completely unintentional, but very high up the Mars um, pet care hierarchy here, but about as senior as you can go as, as a veterinarian, right? You know, I suppose you can go anywhere as a veterinarian, actually. That's one of the things I've learned. So there is ongoing career opportunity, but I'll admit, Dave, it's a, you know, a bit of a surprise. I wouldn't have looked at my career 10 years ago and thought that it was possible that this is where I would end up. The obvious question is, so how did it all happen? And I think that's one of the things we always want to explore <laughs> is like, what were the inflection points, the you know, how did you pinball your way there? Or did you pinball? Or was this a straight shot? You came straight out of vet school, fully formed <laughs> plan. Not. Bam, I'm going to do this thing here. So rather than toss you the obvious question, I think let's break it down a little bit more. You are an Oregon graduate, the Beavers, I, I believe. You go Beavers, that's absolutely. I've done my research. <laughs> I'm impressed. Tell me a little bit, you know, beautiful state, visited it briefly. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your, let's go into the backstory before we get to the, you know, the more obvious stuff up front. I'm curious, what drives Molly McAllister to go from wherever you started life to being at this (laughs) lofty position with a lot of responsibility in many ways, but just this very prominent leadership position within the global veterinary community? Yeah, it's a great question. It's probably many, many pieces to pull together. If I were to tell you, you dove into Oregon, and actually, I think that's a very apt place to start. For some reason, my entire life, I have been very geographically pulled. And I love travel. I love experiencing different things around the world, different places. I've had great opportunities to live in other cultures and experience you know, the breadth of the world. I love coming home. I love Oregon. I love the Pacific Northwest. So that has been part of who I am, as well as some of the choices that I've made, quite frankly, over time. So if I just go to, you know, what is Oregon about? I was fortunate enough to be raised between a very rural farm life and an urban city life in in the city of Portland, which I attribute much of my breadth of the way I approach my life and the way I approach the world to that sort of dualistic background. The beautiful nature that we have in Oregon, what it is to grow up surrounded by herds of cattle and horses and farm animals, and what opportunities we have in that more societal, you know, urban setting. So sidebar question, voodoo (laughs) donuts, discuss. (laughs) Can I give you the background to that? Question. Please, please. So I think it's maybe the first time I'm flying in to speak. I've flown up from Sydney, gone on a plane at LAX, flown across to Reagan, and I was sat next to this lady, wonderful lady. We chatted all the way, like, I don't know, it was four and a half hours of flying. And I thought I'd done the big bit of the flying from Sydney. And we had a great conversation, got off, and I'm waiting at the, the baggage reclaim. And it's like, I'm just struck by how easy 
going everybody on this plane is bearing in mind what i know about dc is now that it's probably not that easy going but people are like just chatting who are you i'm such and such from such and such and that's like the very standard us thing so there's all these conversations being struck up and perhaps it's my glaswegian chattiness that's rubbing off on people or whatever but i see this this lady and she's got this donut box and i I don't remember if it was pink but in my head it was pink it is pink bright pink and, and she looked at everybody's like drooling at the donut box. I says, what's it with the donut box? She goes, these are not just donuts. These are voodoo donuts. And I said, well, what's so special about them? She lifted it up and there was donuts covered in bacon. <laughs> That's an amazing donut, by the way. <laughs> and I, as I a vegan, like, as a vegan, I don't I know that you would feel I the same. But <laughs> I wasn't a vegan at that point. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but this was my introduction. And then I learned that Portland was a kind of a cool fun, funky place. So tell me about voodoo donuts. Yeah, I'll start actually, I'll back up a little bit more and say, you know, in my decades of um, living (laughs) in and around Portland, uh, you know, after after being of a certain age, it's been very interesting to watch Portland change and grow. You know, when I was a kid in high school and college, I mean, it was quite normal that you would just walk through town and you would see people you knew. And certainly if you were, you you talk about airports, if you were on a flight going to or from Portland, there was guaranteed to be someone on that flight that you knew, or at least, you know, a single uh, one degree of separation, you know, that's, it was a small city really, you know, and I've left and come back and really kind of had the joy of being an observer and Portland in from about 20 years ago, just exploded and became this, you know, sort of hit place. And so Voodoo Donuts is one of those examples that I laugh at as a Portland native because we never would have imagined 30 years ago that we would be known for donuts and not just donuts, but donuts that people carry in a pink box across the country. It's amazing. So to get to your question on Voodoo Donuts, yeah, who would imagine that in the middle of urban kind of gritty Portland that this donut shop would open up that would not only have lines around the block, but it's created this niche of, I'll say, interesting donuts. You can get married there if you'd like. I don't know if it's still the case, but it used to be that everyone there had the license to whatever that is. They could conduct weddings, and so people would get married there. And uh, they created just this incredible buzz around what they do. And you know, and since then, there have been other businesses that have done the same. But I think Voodoo is a unique example of Portland. <laughs> That is amazing. I had no idea that that was a th- weddings and donuts. But when yeah. you think about it, why not? Why different, not? Different I kind mean... of ring on the finger, I suppose. But, you know, when, an edible. <laughs> a delicious what? one. A an edible, delicious, delicious ring. <laughs> exactly. Do you have a favorite donut? Ooh, I, mean, I, you did, know that... I don't want to digress from donuts, to be honest. We talk about this for a long while. Oh, we could. We could. I, You know, I've got to say the bacon maple bar. So it's a it's a strip of bacon on top of a delicious maple bar. That is hard to beat. I don't eat a lot of meat, but in that kind of a mixture, that's hard to pass up. All right. So, so growing up wild north, northwest of America, this sort of dualism between country and, and city, I imagine you don't get to where you've been, and this could be completely wrong, but I imagine you don't get to where you've been without a certain amount of drive, a certain amount of determination, a certain amount of skill, success, results to get you there. And that requires some fortitude. Is that an accurate reflection (laughs) to you? 
<laughs> yeah, I didn't know if there was a, I thought there was a There was, and the way I stumbled okay. over it because my gonna... mind's thinking of the next 10 questions, but I'm trying really hard <laughs> not to ask them all at once. Yeah. Is that an accurate reflection? Uh, yes. And, you know, I think for so many questions like that or, or that concept, it so often goes back to an origin story. And so, yes, I think I look back at my history. I think I look back at my family and think about some of my early years. And I was definitely put in a position where purpose and drive were part of who I was. That was part of how I, you know, kind of established my identity. When I look around the profession, I feel like that's one of the things that a lot of people are missing is that connection to purpose, particularly post-graduation, mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. you know, we seem like we've got this purpose around the, the career rails, as it were, and then the rails stop when you hit life. And yeah. I think that people seem to struggle with, to an extent, with purpose and identity at that point. So that's a separate question of itself. But you, you gained something, and I wonder if you gained something through the loss of someone earlier in your career. And I wondered mm-hmm. if you might speak to that. Is that something yeah. that we can talk about? Yeah, absolutely. That is a huge part, I think, of who I am today. I'll start by describing my family a bit, because where I sit in my family, I think, is important. So I'm the daughter of uh, two Midwestern transplants. My dad was a really grew up as a poor farm kid in South Dakota who, through his own sort of determination and grit, became, ironically, went to vet school for a year, decided this was back in the 50s, decided he didn't want to be James Harriet out in a muddy cow barn and getting kicked. And so, uh, so he went to medical school. My mom also, you know, kind of went down the nursing path, but they moved to Oregon had four kids of which I'm the youngest quite significantly. I am the, you know, the surprise slash mistake (laughs) by about a nine year difference. I think one thing that's really important is that while I grew up in the context of a, you know, sort of semi large family, I guess by today's context, because I was so much younger, I was also kind of alone. And so much of what I did was I wasn't an only child because I didn't have my parents doting on me. They were busy with three others, but I definitely was kind of left to carve my own path, which I actually am quite grateful for. There was, you might think with that medical background that I would be pushed and driven to do certain things by my parents. And I would say that actually wasn't really the case. So I have two older brothers and an older sister. And my older sister was absolutely a second mother to me, 12 years older. You know, she took care of me for most of my childhood as a very close friend and confidant. And when I was 12, um, she unfortunately was killed. She was in uh, graduate school in California at UCLA. She was getting a master's in public health. So that's uh, a seed. I eventually went on to get my own, probably to some degree because of her. But she was out sea kayaking and she and her friend that she was kayaking with were unfortunately attacked by a shark. She went missing for a few days and they found her several days later. And that was hugely impactful to me at 12 years old. I think just as I was starting to figure out who I was, that was a big trauma and a trauma, you know, not just to me personally, but to my family and really shaped a lot of the decision-making that went on for me in those formative years. And I would say, you know, continues to leave me with, you know, that, that irony of I today am grateful for some of the lessons that I've learned through that. Of course, would never wish to lose someone you love, but it is amazing what you can learn from experiences like that. And I'm internally grateful for what I've learned. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I'm so sorry to hear it. 
even from all those years ago, I notice in many of the people I speak to that there has been some form of experience, trauma or otherwise, but frequently trauma that has to an extent defined the individual isn't the right word, but it's been such a formative moment in that, that when you read books on history and people who've done quite remarkable things, there is often something incredibly, you'd look at it now in the world that we live in that seems quite safe, quite, mm -hmm. it's like we're playing with the stabilizers on, recycling our bikes with yeah. the stabilizers on, but they've, they've kind of come through it and made something of it. And one of the things I'm always struck with is the experience of, for example, survivors from concentration camps mm -hmm. and the difference mm -hmm. between those that made it and didn't. And it's, you know, it's, Frankel describes it in Man's Search for Meaning is just, just an incredible book yeah. and so many lessons. But I'm curious as to were there lessons that you learned through that experience? You know, you, you found the modicum, the quantum of silver lining in what was an immensely dark cloud. But I'm, I'm curious whether you can share any of the lessons that you did walk away from that moment with. Yeah. And maybe, maybe the timeline when they became revealed to you, because sometimes mm -hmm. that takes a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. You mentioned purpose before. And I think the first lesson that I learned quite quickly was around the importance of purpose and the impact you have on the people around you. If someone dies, you hold a memorial service. And she was 24 at the time. So it was, you know, a tragedy for the community that she was in, the public health students and, you know, her friends from college. And so I had the opportunity to listen to how those folks spoke of her. And certainly, you know, anytime someone passes, you have an opportunity to share the great things about that person. But I think it was formative to me in that she had very aspirational, maybe aspirational isn't the right word, but she had wonderful, ambitious goals around impacting the world positively. She had traveled to Africa. She was getting a master's in public health to go back and focus on women's health. And so it really struck me how important it was to think about how you impact the people around you and what purpose can bring to life. And so while she never went to Africa and had that opportunity to work in women's health, she influenced a lot of people around her by having that sort of a, a purpose around societal impact. So that I think was, was immediately apparent. Another thing uh, that I'll put into veterinary terms is, you know, I think we all hear you've got your horses and your zebras and, you know, zebras are uncommon. And, and so look for, the, you know, look first for the horses, but I'll say in this context, even, you know, it was even just a month or two ago, it struck me, I was in a conversation with some people and someone mentioned, you know, oh, being as rare as a shark attack. And, you know, then people say that, of course, I don't expect people to know, but it, you know, it always just, there's a little spark that goes off for me to say, well, rare things do happen. And that is a reality of life. And while we can't lead our lives going, what if something bad happens? It's not that, but we do have to be aware that those things can and do happen in the world around us. And life, you know, I, I love your analogy about stabilizers and training wheels. Life is not actually meant to be lived with stabilizers and tra you know, or training wheels. Life is about, it's about how precious it is because of the risk in the world around us. And so that would be a second piece. And then I would say a third piece that came along a little bit later would be around the value of not just the value of life, but the importance of a real sense of humanity. And what I mean by that is 
this was also probably relatively soon after she passed away, but I remember reading articles in the paper around, you know, world events and it, it would say, you know, casualties, 112 died, 67 died, or I'll go to events in the U S last week, five people died. And it's so easy for us to get lulled into a sense of, well, these things happen. Those people died. And I, I remember the moment where I thought, what about each of the families of each of those people? What if there's a sister, there is a parent, there is a relative, there is a friend whose life has been changed forever because of this. And so how does that impact the decisions we make? I'd sum it all up. If I look at really what, what it came to in my adulthood and many of the choices I made was about how precious life is, how valuable our life is, and how important it is that we live it with purpose. You know, I don't want that to sound unrealistic, but I think that it's so easy for us to get sidetracked by things that don't matter. It's a normal part of life to get sidetracked by things that don't matter. I don't live my life in some, you know, perfect Zen bliss, always focused on a greater purpose, but I think it's important to be able to remind myself and pull myself back. You know, I'm trying to get into meditating. And I think it's that, you know, that idea of it's okay. Your mind's going to wander. Your purpose is going to wander, but being able to pull yourself back and remind yourself that practice is what is really important. So I think pulling ourselves back to the fact that we have one life and living it as far as I believe, and you know, there's other beliefs out there, but living this time with purpose is one of the best things we can do. There's a long (laughs) answer to your simple question. There's a lot to dig into there. The first question I've got off the back of that is there feels already in our conversation like, and maybe there's cognitive bias happening in my mind here. <laughs> the thought of dualities is cropping up again and again as you speak. Mm-hmm. There's the the urban and the town. There's the, I think Betsy Charles describes it, the tension mm-hmm. between the awful and the incredible. Mm-hmm. There's one other thing popped into my head there as you were talking about purpose and this lesson that you you were passed from your sister in having that purpose, but also in this, that, that doing anything and having purpose and taking a direction and going in a, on a journey, you're going to suffer setbacks. Mm-hmm. And that I wonder if this, is there a message for you that you can offer, you know, perhaps someone who's earlier on in their career or going through something tough where I wonder if the interpretation of there's one life, so don't waste it that when people come up against something hard, they go, this is too hard. I'm not wasting my life on this. It's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and life's meant to be good all the time. (laughs) So they Mm -hmm. stop, but you don't get to be in a position where you're the medical chief medical officer at Banfield. You don't get to be in a position where you're (laughs) anything good at anything where you're, when you attain a sense of uh, mastery that you can do this without going through that pain. Is there a message in there that you would have for people? Yeah. This is a great question. It's something I've been really reflecting on a lot in the last couple of years of my life, which probably not coincidentally is the time I've been in this role. I firmly believe in the importance of, you know, some people call it paradox. I think some people would just call it the space between. I firmly believe in the power of being able to hold two realities, two distinct realities, differing realities, and hold them together and not feel a need to come to an answer. And I'll step back and say, when I think about myself earlier in my career, when I think about the culture in veterinary schools and, you know, in our profession, when I first graduated, it was about having the right answer. It was about being right, right, getting through whatever problem was ahead of you, judging there's a right 
and there's a wrong. And I think what I have really learned, what is really, and started with my sister and has only been solidified as time goes on is that there really is no right and wrong. I mean, sure, you know, we can talk about what diagnosis you make off of this radiograph or, but when it comes to the really important questions, and I'd say, well, I won't rabbit hole too quickly. When it comes to the really important questions, it is that ability to sit with two opposing emotions, two opposing viewpoints and be okay being in that space. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean feeling great about it. It doesn't mean that you run into a barrier and you think this is wonderful. This is the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, you know, ideally at some future point, we look back at those hard times and we do find the gratitude in it, but it's not about that. It's about recognizing that this life is precious and challenging. When we learn to live into that challenge, when we learn to, yes, find the moments of bliss, find the moments where we can be grateful, but also be okay recognizing that sometimes it's hard and we just need to live with the hard. We don't have to be happy about it, but we can live with it and great things come from that. You know, so I'll go back to veterinary, you know, thinking about folks earlier in their veterinary career, whether students or or not, it's, I'd liken it to, I'll go back to the example of a radiograph. Sure. Maybe there is a right and wrong diagnosis to make from a radiograph, but the question in front of you is what are you going to do for that patient? And what you're going to do for that patient is going to depend on what might be conflicting realities, what the client wants to do, what the client can afford to do, what's best for that particular pet, what is the gold standard of medicine. And we can't have all the answers and we can't find, most of the time, we can't find a clear and easy path through all of that. And so learning to be okay with not having the answer and not seeing a clear path out right in the moment is immensely valuable, I think, for our own well-being and for our ability to really tackle complex challenges. So you're a data nerd. Your CV has quite a lot of time spent noodling around in, in sort of big chunks of, of data. I'm curious how, you know, this comes to the evidence base, and this is all the rage right now, evidence-based medicine, <laughs> evidence-based medicine, like it's some sort of set point you get to well the evidence says this with Mm -hmm. with comfort and you know the trap you feel that people might fall into there is the same trap we always all fell into is that's the bit of evidence we knew then and absolutely you can't know everything so at some point you're kind of going to be out of date to an extent it's that ever burgeoning massive information but that's only a tiny fraction of the the picture as you've just pointed out that you can have the most evidence-guided perfect answer the client can't afford it or the client doesn't understand the way that you presented that information. So I wonder if are there practical ways that you have worked, you know, it's, you've identified this being able to hold this sort of opposing thing within you. You're the mm-hmm. vessel that this thing can sit and exist in, but what techniques, were there any techniques or lessons or processes you went through or still use that, that help you to be that vessel? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll say this is where my, I mentioned trying to start meditating. This is where that, <laughs> the idea of that practice is coming from. Yep. And because when you said that, the first thing that came to mind is, well, I've had to teach myself to just kind of stop and breathe for a minute to not react, but to respond. And mm-hmm. I think that's important, giving ourselves the grace of space so that we can respond to the situation in front of us and not react to it. But you started the question talking about 
the fact that I am a data geek, which is true, which is, you know, a, probably a paradox here. I am a data geek talking about how we have to learn to just sit in a complex situation and not make a decision. There's another um, duality happening. Right another there. duality that I'm perfectly comfortable with. So how do we go through this? Actually, the thing that pops into my mind that is a framework that, that we've started using at Banfield, but it comes from human healthcare. It's the idea of domains of quality, domains of quality medicine. So there are six domains of quality. We've adapted them to veterinary care. So I may not be perfectly accurate with what human healthcare uses, but it's safe, effective. It's typically patient-centered. We adapted that to be client and patient-centered, timely, efficient, and equitable. When I think about making clinical decisions, when I use that framework, I think it recognizing that that is about providing holistic quality. And for many of us in our education, quality focused on safe and effective, not any of the rest of those domains. And so when I think about all six of those domains, as I'm trying to, you know, I'm not practicing anymore, but as I'm thinking about a patient case or thinking about what we might want to do clinically or promote clinically, thinking about all six of those domains really helps to balance the different viewpoints and try to make a decision that's beneficial across all. It reminds me a little bit of the budgets, the various budgets. Mm. That I, you know, we often think in yes. cost budgets, but there's, there's those other budgets and it's, yeah. I'm stealing from Mary Gardner now brazenly. But she seems like a good person. <laughs> if you're going to steal, steal from a smart person, right? And it's certainly her that I heard first describing the time budget, the emotional budget, and the, yes. uh, the physical budget involved in any treatment recommendation. Yes. Um, but it certainly seems to tie into that in terms of thinking. And, and there's just an empathy that goes with that mm-hmm. and understanding of that. Mm-hmm. Let's move off of that for a second. And I really want to get to, because there's another... I think there's another quite remarkable thing is that I wonder if there's, I don't know if the myth is the right word. In fact, I, I expect I will be getting a bucket load of hate mail for even using that word now. I already slightly regret using it. So apologies, it's not meant to offend anybody, but I'm going to throw a, I don't know if it's a supposition or a thesis or something like that at you, but this notion, let's call it a notion, that feels better, Okay. that women don't end up in positions of leadership aren't interested, don't do management leadership because they're not interested in business and, and are just going to have babies. Your resume- You are going to get hate mail for that. <laughs> it's not my notion. <laughs> That's true. That's I'm true. tossing it out there. Mm-hmm. No. Your resume says otherwise. Share your experience. I think the direction I'd love to take our conversation in is that you have family, but you've also had this rich, varied career. You've used, mm-hmm. it's almost like you've surfed the waves. I kind of have this sort of do this talk mm-hmm. on surfing the waves of, of your career to have this great life. You look to me like somebody who's gotten pretty good at surfing the waves of your career and of life and blending the two in together. So how does one get to be in a position? And I ask this question not to get hate mail, but because show people the breadcrumbs of how you balance being a mom mm-hmm. and being a successful businesswoman and veterinarian. Yeah. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, Dave, around very, in our first few minutes talking, you talked about, you know, veterinary students kind of working towards, we were talking about purpose and, you know, working towards a a thing and then finding themselves at the end of the railroad track. 
don't worry, this all does tie together. But I think that, you <laughs> know, better. what I hear- Mine doesn't usually, so. <laughs> what I hear in that, or what I perceive to be the case in that is that in lieu of a purpose, we've moved ourselves or we've driven ourselves towards a destination. I think that when we aim for a particular destination, we're missing the whole point of life, which is can, about- yeah. Can I interrupt and ask you to expand upon that point slightly? Yeah. What do you mean by we're driving us to a destination? I'm going to become a veterinarian. I'm going to become a veterinary orthopedic surgeon. I'm going to become, as you said, you know, the chief medical officer at Banfield. And and, in answer to that question, no, that was was not my my career plans. I'm going to become a thing. And when I achieve that thing, I will be happy. I will have done what I was meant to do. And I think, you know, we've replaced a destination with a purpose. And so when I talk to not just young women, but a variety of, you know, younger veterinarians, when I talk to them about career opportunities, the question I really like to ask them is what is the impact you want to have with your life and with your career? And how do you focus on the impact? Don't focus on the job, the next job. I mean, yes, to a degree, but that that's not really where you need to be, where your brain needs to be operating. Your brain needs to be at that deeper level of how do you want to use your life to impact the world around you? And it might be for some, I really want to become a parent. That is what I am meant and driven to do. I'm going to be a veterinarian off to the side because it pays for you know what I need it to pay for, but I want to become a parent. For others, it's, you know, I want to lead a business successfully. For others, it's, I want to be a great clinical. I love, you know, dogs, cats, horses, cows, whatever it might be. And I want to make their lives better. But identifying that way that you want to impact the world that you think you are best suited to impact the world is so important. So to go to my surfing journey of my career, and you asked particularly about parenting. So I wouldn't normally say this, but I I would say not for any reason other than I tend to somewhat compartmentalize the two when talking about it. I mean, I've always wanted to be a parent. I've always loved kids. I was a nanny for a while. So being a parent was always on my radar. And I've always been driven by my career purpose. I've always been driven by a desire to, I mean, it's pretty vague. So this is not a a huge academic exercise. I've just been driven by a desire to make life better for animals and eventually learned that to make life better for animals, I need to make life better for people. That's what's helped me make decisions along the way. I did delay having kids until I had my son when I was 38. I was, you know, a bit late to the game not for a concerted decision, just that was the way things happened. But ironically, after I had kids is when my leadership trajectory really took off and I had a lot more opportunities. And so so I had some really interesting internal conversations around how to balance that. But if I, you know, I guess to go back to how did I make those decisions along the way, the first five, seven years of my career was a lot of serendipity was maybe the, the word I would use. And, you know, you, it's you came into veterinary medicine as a thing. You're not one of the people who wanted to be it since you were, you know, as long as you can remember, right? When did right, you decide? Right. When did the decision happen? You know, I, I always loved animals. I mean, I could have been, I, I wasn't, I could have been one of those kids. And from childhood, people always said, you should be a vet. You should be a vet. And I was my- What did you head- want to be? Oh, anything, everything. I mean, I, I tried on 150 different things. I wanted to be a teacher. I one time wanted to be an astronaut for like a year of my life. That would, that would make a lot. Uh, yeah. You know, I wanted to be a linguist. I wanted 
Yeah, everything I, that, that never happened for me. <laughs> I can barely speak English. <laughs> so with the, the vet career, I really just, I jumped around, frankly. When you look at the externships I did in college, when you look at how I spent my first five years in practice, I jumped around. And now I'm really glad I did. A lot of people would have told me that wasn't the right thing to do. I'm really glad I did. That allowed me to, you know, kind of test things out and find where my skills were best utilized, where I could create the impact I wanted to create. And so I really was following my kind of my passion along the way. Sorry, right. And, and part of your passion was just this spirit of exploration by the sounds mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. The U.S., and I think where the U.S. goes, often we see other patterns emerging other ways. Mm-hmm. It feels like people now, there's a secondary question coming about the particular two cohorts graduating at the minute mm-hmm. and the challenges and opportunities what they've been through are, are going to bring. I'm kind of curious yeah. for some insight in there where you think that's going to wind up. There is this feeling of being on rails. I was having a conversation with a you know, practice owner who's over in, in Boston and talking about, you know, it's very hard to get somebody who's coming straight out of college now who will go into general practice. A lot of vets feel like they have to do this internship, which almost instantly keeps you on rails towards some other destination, like they've made that decision from quite far out. Is that a pathway that serves the individuals, actually serves anybody particularly well? You know, I hear of, you know, you guys have the matching system for residencies and things over there. And that always strikes me as an employer. I think, why on earth would I want that to be my recruitment process? When there's no consideration of values or behaviors or anything like that. I just, here you go. It feels very regimented to the point that is it serving the greater good to have people Mm -hmm staying within this more educational pathway and not doing as you did, which was not the shotgun approach, but the pick and mix in the, the candy store approach yeah. where you, you really get to, you get to grab onto, Ooh, I like that. I'm going to go with that for a while. And it's okay mm-hmm. to go with that for a while. You don't have to just be this amazing expert at everything. Like we can't all be expert at, at right. specialists, can we, or can we? <laughs> Maybe we can. I wouldn't speak for everyone by any means. You know, there's such a variety of people in our profession who, you know, there's a different path for everyone. In my experience, we have created a culture of fear of being wrong. Mm -hmm. We've created a very, if I say academic heavy, I'm not, I don't mean that in slight to our academicians, but I think that we have created this scenario in which veterinary students are so fearful of not having the answer at their fingertips. I mean, I had that fear and I think my perception is that's only gotten worse because the body of knowledge has grown so much. The demands of practice have continued to grow. And, you know, unlike human medicine, I mean, I don't need to say it for the veterinary audience, but when my father was a general surgeon in the human world, he was a parathyroidectomy specialist. (laughs) He specialized on removing the parathyroid. I mean, you didn't need me to tell you that, but I mean, you know, when you think about that, that was the majority of his work in his later years of practice compared to what we expect veterinarians to know and do. It's not realistic. I don't think for the human brain, there are some amazing individuals out there who do that, but I think, and let me be careful because I'm not saying that that means everybody should specialize. Some people thrive in that and that's wonderful but not all people thrive in that. But I think what we've missed out on is that ability to enjoy the adventure, to try things out. And and if I can say one thing that I have learned in my 
however many years since I graduated, 15, 17 years since I graduated from veterinary school, I never appreciated the breadth of experience and opportunity that our profession offered until I got into it and started playing the candy store game. I had no idea what kind of things you could do with a veterinary degree. And I would say I went into it pretty open-minded about different possibilities. So when I think about those folks who at four decided that they wanted to be a small animal vet or a large animal vet or a surgeon, and they have been on that path, I want them to be able to throw back those curtains and just see what else is out there. It might not be right for you, but to be aware. Because I think that we, when we talk about the well-being in our profession, I think that feeling that I got to the end of the railroad tracks and there's nowhere else to go is one of the, either the arrival at that point or the fear of arriving at that point really is detrimental to our well-being. Because we should be able to say, this is a candy store. There are so many great experiences to be had. And I don't have to have the expertise immediately. I can go and learn. And I have great transferable skills that will allow me to learn about almost anything. I would love for you to chart us your pathway through the candy store and how you made some of the decisions along the way. Yeah. So let's say I I went into veterinary school probably with equal weighting between, was I going to become an equine sports medicine vet? Was I going to become a wildlife vet? And frankly, honestly, maybe don't tell my boss at Banfield. I don't know if small animal vet was even in the, you know, in the top three, top three. I, I, I'm just honest, kidding. <laughs> there's not many people listen to this. So I don't think you will. <laughs> so, you know, I had some idea of what I was going to do. And when I graduated after having done a wide variety of externships where I did do small animal externships, I did do large animal equine, wildlife, marine mammal. I graduated and true to the era thought, you know, I could probably use the chance to get some in-depth specialized experience. And so I did an equine internship. And actually, let me back up for a second and say that there was a point in my first couple of years of veterinary school where I drifted. In fact, I remember, so Oregon State, fun fact, I think still is the smallest veterinary school in the US. My class had 36 people in it. We were a very small class. And year one, we had a couple people leave. And one of those people just decided the profession wasn't for her. And I remember at the time kind of thinking, oh, am I in the right place? Should I reconsider? Should I leave now before I invest more money and more time, more energy? Or is this where I'm meant to stay? And I'm, I'm so glad I stayed. But in that time, I reached out to a lot of people. I had conversations with a, a wide variety of veterinarians. And one of them was a guy by the name of, I might say his name, Steve Osofsky, I think it was. He was the veterinarian for the World Wildlife Fund. And I knew him through a, an undergrad mentor. And his recommendation to me was whatever you do in the veterinary profession, go into clinical practice, solidify your clinical skills. Then you'll always have those. It's like riding a bike, then go try the world. You know, so basically what he was saying is don't graduate and try to come work for us at World Wildlife Fund. And so, but that was great advice, I think for me, because it took me into the equine internship where I thought, you know, I'm going to really solidify some good clinical skills, had a great experience. I mean, I worked for wonderful people and about... 10 months in, I realized that I hated my pager going off in the middle of the night. (laughs) And frankly, when that happens, you know, equine medicine is probably not for you, at least the way it works today. And actually in in more honesty, I had married a a boyfriend that I'd had through vet school and and it was creating tension in our relationship. It was a a well-being challenge. And so we 
variety of, of things going on in personal life, but moved from the location where my internship was, moved, actually moved back to Portland and kind of drifted for a while. I ended up getting divorced in, from that marriage and was kind of struggling to figure out what to do. So I dabbled. I did some small animal relief work um, at friends clinics where they would kind of hold my hand and convince me that, yes, as an equine vet, I could do this. I started doing some volunteer wildlife work and ultimately ended up in a small animal practice. And what I would say was really important about that period of time is that personally, I was kind of a mess. I was going through a divorce. I was unsure. I was you know, a year and a half out of vet school. So I was not sure of myself professionally and kind of just jumping in and trying a few different things made me realize how transferable my skills were. And so that to me is just a key phrase that all of us in the veterinary medicine profession need to be confident of. We have great transferable skills. So you may have to learn a few things. I might've had to learn how to dose Clavamox versus, you know, how to dose penicillin in the horses, but I could do that. Those are minor details. So I practiced in small animal practice for a while. And then I hit that point, I think so many do, around five years out where I was ready to try something different. I considered practice ownership. I considered going on and uh, doing a residency, getting specialized. I'm so glad I didn't because I didn't even know what I wanted to specialize in. That would have been a, a mistake to just you know go with on a whim, at least for me. I took a job and I worked at a wildlife rehab facility as their veterinarian. I Where was, was that? that was my, in Portland, actually. So yep. we, have a, we have a rehab facility here associated with our local Audubon Society. And that was an amazing job. Again, I used my veterinary skills. I hadn't had a lot of training that, in wildlife. I'm guessing that would be very varied as well. And the, the, the size and range of species, everything from some tiny, tiny little possum-esque creature up to Sasquatch and beyond, yes. right? Like, yes. Yeah. The only thing we didn't do is we didn't do a lot of large mammals because we didn't have the space to hold them, but we would do rescues. That sounds so exciting. You know, we do some rescues of, it was mostly urban wildlife, but lots of birds, you know, learning to handle an eagle or a great blue heron is, I mean, just, just fascinating. And so my clinical skills were like, you know, they're good. I got, I got a lot of other stuff I got to learn. My main staff was a volunteer force of 70 people. And I hadn't managed people before. I hadn't owned a clinic. And I got to learn how to use 70, not just 70 people, but 70 volunteers, which is a whole other, you know, <laughs> skill set to effectively care for animals. And that was really fun. And then, you know, I'll go back to the personal side of life hitting. My divorce caused some financial strain and right, wildlife a medicine. Difficult point as well, right? Yes. Like leaving yes. university. Exactly. And wildlife medicine is, I would say it's not a profitable, <laughs> super profitable venture. You know, and so frankly, I reached a really hard time for me from who I thought I was and what I wanted, you know, how I was going to impact the world. Cause I thought that was, I'm, I've been very passionate about the environment and conservation. I was doing a lot of education of the general public. I loved that work, but I just couldn't afford to do it anymore. So, so this is actually, I feel like I want to dwell on this just for a second. So you've yeah. come out of vet school a place where you've had a moment of an existential, not crisis, but, but certainly ask yourself some questions. You've graduated the high of that, but then the equine, the difficulties with that divorces, they're horrible. And then the financial impact of that early in your career. And that now unable to do this thing. That's you found a spark, you found some joy in. 
How did yeah. you feel in that moment? And how did you get from this point, which could arguably <laughs> feel like a cul-de-sac or a pretty yeah. big hole you just fell into? How did that feel? What was going on in your mind? And then how did you get out of that hole to the next, the next Yeah, wave? I think it's such an important question because I'll say that was absolutely you know, if I were to go back to probably the three lowest times in my life, one of them being my sister, that was absolutely another one of them. And I can't think of a third one. So maybe, maybe I'll go to, you know, my two lowest point. That was, that was a horrible time in my life where I really didn't know. I didn't know how I was going to get through it. And I didn't have, you know, going through a divorce leaves you feeling very open and raw and vulnerable. And, you know, while I had a support system around me, it doesn't feel that way in the moment. You feel like you're all alone. So I, as probably so many veterinarians do, I cuddled up with my animals. I sobbed. I, you know, I really questioned a lot of deep questions about who I was, the impact I wanted to have in the world, how I could have that impact and, you know, what was real and what were sort of stories that I had built up in my mind that had to be true, you know, that I, I had to be married. I had to be a wildlife veterinarian. The only, you know, I think it's easy to, as I say, you know, you got to pull yourself back to the reality is what I've learned. And at that point I was in, I was living in a reality where I felt like there was no way I could be a successful veterinarian if I didn't have the support of a spouse and spousal income. There was no way I was going to be happy being a veterinarian if I couldn't do this wildlife conservation work that I was so passionate about. There was no way I was ever going to be a parent because here I was 30 years old and I was getting divorced. And, you know, so, so it felt like all my dreams were crumbling Just and I had failure to failure sign flashing away. Big fail, yeah. And there, you know, and kind of fast forwarding through all this sobbing into my, you know, dog's fur, <laughs> but, you know, really coming back to it to say, okay, let's go back to some fundamental questions. What's important to me? What's the impact I want to have in the world? What do I need to do today to get through this period of time? And I don't need to worry about, you know, it's great to think ahead. It's great to be a planner, but worrying about what's going to be happening in 10 years is not serving me well today. What I need to think about is how I'm going to get through the next few months, the next year. Go back to that mentality of it's okay to just try something on, even if you're reluctant to try it on, you know, even if you're trying it on out of necessity, that's okay. And Honestly, now, Dave, I'll say that was a crucial fork in my life journey that absolutely has led me to where I am today. And I am so grateful for that. I left some things behind. There were some pieces I had to say, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that right now in my life, but I gained so, so much. And I would have never, ever anticipated that being the outcome. You know, now when I go through really hard times, I think it's, you know, sadly, it's really good for all of us to go through times like that. Because now when I go through those really challenging times, I can say, it's okay. I don't have to see the future today. I just have to keep taking steps forward and see what's going to come. So what that led me to was I'll also add in, don't underestimate the power of just a support network, because in my times of, you know, most of greatest crisis and grief, What's been most useful to me is just reaching out to people to say, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Not necessarily for advice or a direction, but just what do you think when I tell you this? And in that moment, I had met this great colleague of mine in the local area. We kind of had a similar career path and she had ended up working in industry, working for Bayer as you know, at the time, one of their professional services veterinarians. 
and she was getting a master's in public health. She had a lot of the same passions I did. And she's like, you know, it's a great job. You should look into it. And so I reached out to a recruiter. I had an interview with her. That was a really great moment in my life as well. When I, I had some sort of epiphany as I prepped for that interview And, you know, that led me to my job with Royal Canaan, which was a job within the Mars network, which in, you know, sort of a a wonky, you know, curvy trajectory led me to where I am today. And again, I, if you had asked me three months prior to that interview with the the recruiter, if I would be working in industry, I would have said, no, I bet you my non-existent life savings that that would never happen, you know, and here I am. And I'm so glad, and I'm not glad just because it's been a fulfilling career, but because it comes back to what is my purpose? What is the impact I want to have? And I've been able to bring that to life in a way I wouldn't have imagined possible. It's notable. I've been making notes as you've been talking and I keep putting circles around things that you keep saying over and over. And those things you've said again, and the first time I wrote them down was that they're the lessons that your sister and her her death passed to you. So it's just so clear how you know, the lessons that that gift that she gave you helped you climb out of that hole you're in and then helped yeah. you on your way. And it's it's one moment of tough stuff that taught you something that helped you get through the next tough stuff that led you to yeah. the opportunities. It's just so incredible to sort of see that. Sort of, and thank you for sharing this. It's, uh, you know, it's wonderful to, to sort of, yeah, use wonderful in a very careful way, but just to hear yeah. and see it all joining together. Also, I want to hit on the third point there that the humanity thing mm-hmm. and the numbers and there's a story mm-hmm. and there's a, an individual behind the numbers. We're all collectively and it feels like we're in this very dark place. And ah, maybe I'm using colorful language that I shouldn't make it worse. I should be careful of that. But we're in a tough spot right now, globally. Mm-hmm. Within veterinary medicine, business is booming, but people are breaking. That's, that's yeah. the sense that I get. And so perhaps with more of a thought from being somebody with responsibility for a large swathe of of veterinarians within the profession, there's two parts to this. I wonder how are you seeing people getting through this and has this been all bad? I think that's the first question and I suspect Mm -hmm. you'll have an opinion on it given the Mm -hmm. tougher things you've been through. Is this generation going to get more resilience from having been through this moment? A second question I'll come on to, but let me give you a bite of that one to start with. Yeah. I'd love to answer it from two perspectives because I think there's the perspective of our colleagues, our veterinary professionals, and how each of us individually are being impacted. And then I think there's the perspective of what is it doing to our profession in aggregate as a whole. You know, when I think about what it's doing to individuals, you know, there's no question from what I hear and observe, this is a really hard time in our profession. It is, and I don't, again, I don't need to tell you, I don't need to tell anyone who's listening because in all likelihood they're living it. And I do believe it builds resilience and building resilience isn't fun. It's, you know, not many people, you know, I mean, it's not, it sucks. It sucks. It's hard. You know, it conveys or, or it encompasses, you know, anger and grief and frustration and fatigue. Fatigue is a word that I hear so much of. And my heart goes out to, you know, again, I, I'm not practicing, so I'm not, I haven't had to see a busy day of patients with curbside drop-off and PPE. So I I can't say I've lived it, but I can say I have empathy for how hard those days must be. And having gone through seasons of intense challenge in my life, I know that those seasons do end 
And at the end of it, you can look back and you have built strength. You have built resilience. You have found capabilities within yourself that you wouldn't have found otherwise if you hadn't been put to the test. Now, I want to be very careful because I'm not trying to diminish. I also know that some of our colleagues are breaking. They are going past the breaking point. And so this is not, not trying to belittle the tension and stress that's there. So let me, then if, if I take it to the other side, just quickly, what is this doing to our profession? I think this is the place where I find hope in it because what this has made abundantly clear to the world, at least the Western world around us, is that pets are playing a whole new role in our lives, in our communities, in our society. Up and coming generations see their pets very differently and that's wonderful. They value them as members of their family. It changes things for our profession. But I think we're all here as lovers of animals in general. I think I can say that. And the value of pets in our society is growing. That's wonderful. And we have to be a sustainable profession to be able to give those pets the care that they need that supports the families that they're part of or the people that they belong to. And what I'm hopeful for is that this tension between demand and capacity, that sounds so academic and I don't, it's, you know, people are not just capacity, but our, you know, our physical and emotional capacity to do what pets need for us. Yeah. The human capital, the reality of how we need to refocus, to reimagine how we manage the humans in our profession is absolutely, if not already there, I mean, it is imminent. We have to have new conversations about how we look at the stakeholders of our profession with our veterinary professionals being so key. And so if I can just make a quick jump and then I'll, I know you were kind of going down a different track, but as someone who's a leader in corporate medicine, where I know that it's easy for the soundbite to be, well, corporate medicine is just about the money just about the numbers my hope and what I see happening is that it can't be just about the numbers. The veterinary profession clinics did great last year. Financial success generally was great. Our people aren't going to be able to sustain this. And we have to look at that because for all of us to thrive, businesses, people, pets, and clients, we have to think about the bigger picture and how we do this. I'll go back to that word, sustainably. I wonder, and you can take the fifth on this if you wish, but I think this is an interesting direction to take it. There's a lot of short-termism in the money that, that is flowing through veterinary medicine right now. You know, the private equity money, we know the model, roll up, flip, somebody else is going to buy. Eventually there comes to be an end user and, you know, Mars are one of the end users. Now, first question is, I've heard that there's a 50-year business plan and that business unit managers have to do a 50-year business plan in Mars Corporation. Is that correct? That is correct. That is Uh, correct. Now, this actually, as crazy as it sounds, it actually gives me cheer because it, it makes me think, that somebody's thinking about the problems we have down the track. And Mm -hmm. you've just outlined one of the ones that seems to be the most obvious is that Mm -hmm. is the attrition rate of people. And I'm going to tie in what I was going to ask as a part two there, right here, the attrition rate that we have in the profession, maybe you have data on, is it worse than it used to be? We've just seen a report out recently from, I think Ivan Zach just put, put out a 
you know, his thesis on burnout. The general sense is that it is, and the, the sort of anecdotal storytelling, it's a bit of an oxymoron to call it anecdotal evidence, isn't it? But, but also the evidence we see on the ground of reduced response rates and generally the level of disenfranchisement, which is measurable, which is quantifiable through surveys, those indicators all look pretty, pretty bad. They almost describe a profession that I have been blessed not to feel for long, maybe in bits, but not for long. But squaring this away with a sustainable future in veterinary practice, the two things don't seem very compatible. And then layer into that, we've got COVID hit in March last year. That last three-month period is when you'll be out really paying attention to what the veterinarians are doing. When you're a student, you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, Mm -hmm. no, this gets real in three or four months. I I better show up and pay attention now. Or maybe that was just me. But there's a lot of learning happens at the end. You know, you look at PhD yeah. students, the thesis happens at the end. It's the hockey stick effect. Yeah. And that graduating class of 2020 didn't get the head of the hockey stick. This year have barely had any practical training. And yeah. it doesn't look like there's going to be any respite until middle of the year, perhaps, in terms mm-hmm. of you know practical experiences mm-hmm. from the university point of view. How concerned about that are you? You know, you can choose which hat you want to wear when you answer that. But I'm particularly curious from the, you know, one of the largest employers of veterinarians in the world, how concerned about you are and what practical things ought we be doing? Because it's going to take all of us in the profession to fix. Like one company can't possibly give the mentoring support skills that are required there. Yeah. Yeah. So give us some leadership on this. Yeah. And I'm happy to say I don't have to switch hats. I, I'm happy to say I feel like I can be pretty authentic in my role. And so, I, so I'll put on my single Molly McAllister, who happens to be chief medical officer at Banfield Hat. So your first question, if I caught it right, was really around the attrition of current veterinary professionals. Yeah, I think, are, are you seeing that? Do you have data on that To You know, is there a, a convincing position where, look, this is on our scope as a very big existential threat to the profession? So I can't say from an evidence-based, you know, data standpoint. Anecdotally, yes, I'm hearing that. I'm also hearing, you know, general practitioners still choosing to, they want to go into ER because they're interested in a more diverse caseload or they want to go into specialty. So I can't say across the board, I'm hearing everyone say I'm leaving because it's too stressful, but yes, anecdotally, I mean, and and we can just, you know, you can know from seeing the Facebook groups or whatever, some people are making the choice to step away from the profession, either temporarily or permanently, or they think permanently because of what's going on. So I wouldn't say I'm an optimist, but I would say I'm, I'm an opportunist. And what I would say is in that reality, if that's a reality, when you talk about the business world of veterinary medicine, that puts people front and center. You can't be thinking only about your in-year profits if your veterinary professionals are walking out the door because they can't deal with the stress anymore. And so in finding gratitude or in my work to be able to sit in the space of the conflict as a veterinarian, I feel so much empathy and pain for those colleagues of mine that are making that choice to leave or who are on the verge of making that choice to leave. And I feel hope and positivity because just whether you look at it with a business hat or you look at it with a, you know, people management hat, there's no business to manage if you don't have veterinary professionals to deliver the care. And so this has to balance out. This has to. And I'm proud to say that 
you know, at least I work with a group of people who are focused on people and how they are the center of what we do. And it, it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make the solutions, you know, immediately apparent and immediately achievable, but it means we're having the right conversations. So that gives me some hope, quite a bit of hope, actually. When you talk about then your other question around students and that training, that is definitely on, if I speak more from a Bamfield perspective, that is definitely on our radar. We hire a lot of new graduates. And so while we have a onboarding coaching program to support them, we're cognizant of the fact that that needs to shift. That needs to become a bit more intensive when we have students who've been doing most of their learning virtually. I, again, if I put on, you know, kind of that, what's the other side of the equation with that, I would say maybe it's not so bad that we're now entering into a new phase of our profession where you aren't going to be expected. I shouldn't say you're not expected, but where people are just going to need more experience. They're going to need to learn more. Maybe that's not such a bad thing when we're setting a new standard of not everybody's going to come out knowing everything they need to be ready to go on day one. I haven't thought that through well enough. So, <laughs> so maybe permission requested to, you know, to think through it, but I don't know. I mean, what's your response to that? First of all, I haven't lived through that in, in a university setting. So it's, I don't know if empathy is the right word, but just concerns. I have concern and I feel a lot for those guys. I know how much the final year of vet school meant to me. I, mm-hmm. I personally felt entirely like a fish out of water for the first four years. We do five and in the UK for the most part, sorry, Cambridge. So that final year was where I met clients properly for the first time with responsibility. And that was the moment for me that veterinary medicine clicked. That's where, you know, most of my learning was done and probably even in that first job, but it was, it was the the springboard, if you like. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly, I just think that we all have some degree of shared responsibility to try to take somebody under the wing here. And I think there needs to be a closer meeting of minds here between expectations on the behalf on the part of the graduates as to what is possible in practice and what actually practice life is going to be like, but more empathy on behalf of the leaders of practices, because we're going to have to be more patient. We're going to have to, make accommodations, spend more time with them, give them more time in the exam room. Otherwise, I think they're going to have bigger problems. The flip side, the thing I'm interested to see is that this is just a big smack in the face of heavy dose of life and unexpected stuff that, frankly, none of us has the excuse anymore to feel comfortable because the illusion has been pulled back from our eyes that everything will always be fine en masse. And that has to have other if you're involved in a creative process, there's always trade-offs, isn't there? If everything's lovely and you feel good, when you meet something bad, it feels overwhelming. But when you've been in something bad, you've been in the pressure cooker, you're going to be more resilient and able to deal with mm-hmm. that. And maybe maybe we will just have that combination of empathy and resilience that will, will help us get through it. But I, 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 don't, so. I don't think I've got an answer. I've just got questions. That's why I do this podcast. <laughs> The other piece that I do want to touch on that you said that I think is important is also thinking about what this time has done to our academic institutions. 
And I am not one to criticize, but I think that many would say that change is quite slow in academic institutions for good reason. I mean, you know, rapid change should be metered or balanced. They have had to change. And I think, you know, our whole world has had to change. And perhaps this is now going to open the doors for other changes that we need to have within our profession. And, you know, I won't rabbit hole around, you know, learning curriculums and certification and things like that. But I, I think there's a lot of really good conversation that we've been having in the last four or five years that has been accelerated mm-hmm. and, you know, coming to a clear next step because of what's happened this past year. I feel like I could speak to you for hours, Molly, and really enjoying our conversation, but Let's move into the rapid fire questions because you've given me the opportunity to do that fairly painlessly. So picking up from what you just said, if you had the power to change one thing more than anything else in veterinary medicine, and we've had a good look at things. I mean, there's so many levels we could look at this on environmental, how we care for each other, who we care for. There's so many things gone under the microscope in the last Mm -hmm. 2020 taught us some lessons, be it equality, diversity, technology. I mean, it's just, it feels like we just did a societal SWOT analysis or kind of pestle analysis. And man, we discovered a few things that we got to work on. If you could change one thing in veterinary medicine more than anything else, it would be your priority to change. What would that thing be? So this may sound out of left field based on our conversation, but you just mentioned it. It it would be around the work that we need to do as it relates to equity, inclusion, and diversity. And the reason I say that is that I think that it is foundational to so much of the potential change that we could bring to our profession. And when we reach a place of incorporating, including, and and providing a sense of belonging to a diverse group of people, And so certainly gender diversity, racial diversity, I mean that quite broadly. I do believe that we will be a better and stronger profession. I think that we will have more solutions, different solutions, better, broader ways to look at the work we do and how we do it. And I think that it is, um, dare I say, kind of almost an unacceptable pain point at this point in, in where the world is, that our profession is as it is, as it relates to diversity amongst our colleagues. I know that, you know, you've been heavily involved in championing that and that, that Mars have, have been doing some work in that regards, particularly in this year, or certainly it's come to my attention more because of obvious reasons in this year. But institutionally, the deck is so stacked against mm-hmm. anybody who doesn't, frankly, look like you or me. Yeah, the cost of medicine, the inherent biases that are just built into us. Heck, even seeing what we've seen this week in the U.S. Capitol—not yeah. to get political—but yeah. yeah. there's clear differences between. You stumble awkwardly over every word in this because you're so painfully conscious of just the opportunities that we have that others don't. Yeah. yeah. How on earth is that fixable when it seems so institutionally biased? Yeah. I certainly don't have the answers, nor would I proclaim to. I 
was quite fortunate. In fact, yesterday had the chance to meet with a group of people around this topic, around a coalition that we've put together and thinking through some action steps we want to take. And so attributing this to people far, far smarter, (laughs) far more, you know, who are living this issue, people of color living this issue every day. I think what we called out was that it, it's twofold. One is that there, there are some systemic institutional changes that have to be made. And at least on, you know, on this side of the pond, I'm, I'm happy to say that some of the schools are looking at adjustments to their admission criteria. And there are a lot of conversations around how we help students from underserved communities find the pathway, create a pathway, be supported, have the mentorship that we all know is so important when you're yep. on this journey. Have the role models to look around and actually go, I can be that too. Yes. I see myself in this profession. And I think a really important call out is that until we change our culture, and again, not my words, someone far better, smarter than me said, we need a culture of belonging and caring. And until we create that culture broadly in our profession, we can do a lot of things on the front end and it's going to still, you know, make the back end, the ability for all people to thrive in this profession, profoundly challenging. And I actually love those words, a culture of belonging and caring, because it does represent our, you know, underserved populations, people of color, you know, a wide variety of minorities and it's about all of us. It's about removing shame, removing blame. It's about having a culture of safety, a culture of quality, a culture where we can all be our own, our best selves at work because we can be authentic. Mm-hmm. And that is not just about, you know, you and I and our well being, although that is so important. It's also about how we do our job. We can do such a better job for our patients and for our clients when we come to work as our authentic whole self. I don't know how we get there. I think. Again, there's some really good conversations. I know a lot of groups are mobilizing right now. And we did talk yesterday around, you know, there probably isn't too much redundancy in this place because this is going to be boots on the ground, grassroots, bring this to life from every direction possible so that we can truly make the change we need to make and do it on what I think needs to be an aggressive timeline. My hope for, you know, where I'm holding us accountable at Mars. And I think where some of the other groups are doing this also is that we have to set timelines and we have to be, you know, we have to be driven. And maybe that goes counter to what I was saying earlier around. Sometimes you just have to sit with a problem, but I think we've been sitting with this problem for a long time. Yeah. I, and that feels like the moment was long overdue and um, yeah, it's great to hear of action. It'll be great to see what happens. Veterinary medicine is such an incredibly caring place. I mean, it's been a wonderful home to call my professional space. Mm -hmm. And it is so chock full of people who actually do deeply care and people who are genuinely the beautiful people. But have we gotten so wrapped up in ourselves a little bit that it's actually, there's so much more we can do. There's so many more people that would benefit to broaden our church further. Um, Yeah, yeah. Indeed, broaden it at all perhaps is the way of saying it. So it's great to hear. So, okay, moving on from that then, what was the best piece of advice that you have ever received? I would say, I'll attribute this to one of my mentors. This is the woman who helped me get into wildlife medicine. Wonderful, wonderful woman who has since passed. And she 
embodied in me the the knowledge or the the saying of just because you can't do everything doesn't mean you can't do something. And I take that in two really important cascades. One is as a practitioner, just because you can't perform the gold standard workup and therapy that you'd like, doesn't mean you can't help that patient. Doesn't mean you can't help that client. And that is so, so important because we have so much value that we add just by being in a room, listening to someone and providing a comforting pat, you know, to a dog or a caress to a cat. We can't neglect, we can't forget that impact that we have. And the other piece is maybe a bit more, you know, broad existential around who we are as people, which is, you know, just because a barrier pops up, just because things don't go the way you thought they would go, doesn't mean you aren't planting the seeds for what you want to have come and eventually, or doesn't mean you aren't moving yourself down a path where you maybe can't even imagine what you can achieve later. So you can do something today in service to where you want to go. And counter to that what was the worst piece of advice you've ever received or you've given? Don't, don't buy Bitcoin. <laughs> Ooh, <That sucks>. yeah. <laughs> Bitcoin will I, never I, you know, take off. I know. I actually, I think I did tell that to my dad and uh, thankfully he doesn't listen to me. So this is a good question. And I want to be cautious because I certainly appreciate that when people give advice, you know, they're <laughs> mostly, they're not doing so with the intent of, you know, being malicious or setting you on the wrong path. But right. So, so I'll take this from the standpoint of it was the worst advice for me personally. It was not the right advice for me. And I received this advice from three different mentors in my life at various points of time, which was to pick one thing and become the world's leading expert in it. I got that from veterinarians. I got that from biologists in my undergrad. And I got that from you know family friends. If I had taken that path, I would have been a dismal failure. I get distracted by squirrels. While I'm a data geek, I actually don't want to know that much. I mean, I want to, you know, I want to have a good understanding, but I don't want to know things down to the nth degree. I would have been miserable. The approach that I ended up taking because of my enthusiasm in the candy store was around breadth and, you know, learning a bit about everything and finding where my passions lie and allowing that to take me in directions for a period of time and then go in a different direction. That has suited me far better than becoming the world's expert on one thing. I understand that, you know, and that's where I want to be cautious. I understand that advice. And that is the right, that, that suits many people quite well. That would have been a horrible choice for me. I love it. Now, if you were to recommend a book that you've read recently or a book that's just made the biggest impact on you, what would that book be? This is, a bit hard to limit <laughs> to this one. Can I, can I give you a short list? You can. <laughs> if you're in okay. you can do whatever you like. Okay. Well, first of all, I can't not mention Brene Brown's name. I mean, I think she has impacted so many people in recent times. You know, Dare to Lead is a great book for anyone in a, a leadership position. Her book, uh, Braving the Wilderness, actually was one of the most impactful for me. And that's that one is she really digs deep on vulnerability and shame. And I think that, and I'm not the first, I know Betsy mentioned this in an interview with you, and I'm sure others have. I think that tackling the issue of shame and blame in our profession is really important. And that's something that we each have to tackle individually in ourselves before we can share that wealth broadly. So that was a great book. 
But then there've been a few others that I've, this year has been a big year of eye-opening reads for me. And so I just, I have to call out, there's a book I read called Burnout and it's by, if I remember, Emily and Amelia Nagowski. It's written by a, a pair of sisters. And it talks about the concept of burnout as, if I can say this correctly, they talk about stress being a tunnel that you have to, you have to work your way through. And if you don't allow your emotional cycle to work its way to the end, that stress just continues to build. And that's what leads us to burnout is never actually allowing ourselves to complete the stress cycle. If you read the book, there's a great story, you know, they liken it to, you know, being chased by a lion and what it takes physiologically for your body to go from adrenaline rush to feeling like, okay, phew, my, you know, I'm okay. I got away from the lion and now I can relax. And the fact that in our day-to-day world, we get chased by lions 15 times a day and we never give ourselves the chance to say, phew, I'm okay. And so how do you build that into your life? They particularly write about it from the lens of being female or identifying as female and some of the societal pressure that's put on, on women. But I think it's applicable broadly. And I found it really applicable for our profession as well, where you work day in, day out, so many patients, everyone needs you. You go home, your family needs you. When do you ever let yourself go? Phew, I'm okay. I made it through. So that was good. And then if I can just do two more, Dave, I'm sorry. It's a proper list. Yeah, go ahead. It is a proper list. So I read the book earlier this year around the time of the George Floyd killing White Fragility. And I also just recently had someone send me the book, Cassandra Speaks. So White Fragility, you know, you might be able to perceive what that's about. Cassandra Speaks is around what if history had been written equally from the point of view of of a woman as well as a man? And what would the stories have been like? Both of those, I think, are really important in thinking about how our systems and institutions have been built to create today's status quo and what we need to do, starting with being conscious of that, to be able to make a change. And I think that while those two books are focused, you know, respectively on racism and gender equality, there's so much not only intersectionality between those two, but I think it applies again, you know, coming back to our profession and where are we today? How is it what we want? What are the wonderful things about it? As you say, you know, we have some great colleagues. We have, I, I'm not trying to bemoan the state of our profession. There are wonderful things about our profession and there are places that we want to change. And so how do we peel back the layers and understand the institutions, the systems, the habits, the culture that perpetuates those less desirable pieces of our profession or the, the pieces that we want to change, but we don't even realize that we're reinforcing them on a day-to-day basis. So pardon my list. but <laughs> I, I love it. I need more lockdown to catch up on all this reading. That's the problem. I know. I know. Well, it's been a you know bite of the elephant approach for me because I have two little kids. I don't have time to sit down and dig into a book, but you know, 20 minutes a night, 20 minutes a night. And I've just been, this has been a good year for that. Are you a book or audio lover or a Blinkist kind of? You know, Blinkist is amazing. I got a subscription to that last year and I have used that quite a bit. I am a bibliophile. You know, I was a book lover as a kid. I read them like crazy. So I still do love the written word and flipping the pages. I listen to audiobooks and podcasts when I run, which is kind of bizarre, but it works for me. But yeah, mostly I I flip through the books myself. All right. 
So second to last question, if you could give yourself one piece of advice back and normally I ask if it's at graduation, but for some reason I'm tempted to let you choose the time and date Hmm. yourself. When would that time be? And what would that piece of advice be if you could go back in time and pop out? I think I would go back to, you know, I mentioned to you those moments in my, my first year of veterinary school and questioning if I had made the right choice. I would go back to that time because, you know, I didn't delve into it, but I'll say that was, that was an important time in terms of, you know, young adulthood, early twenties, you know, thinking I'm making life and death choices, literally in terms of the direction I'm taking my, my career or irreversible choices, I'll say. So I felt that the impact of every decision was so critical. And what I would tell myself in that point of time, I think, is that number one, there are so many details of your life that you fret over and stress over that no one's ever going to remember later on, whether it's your grades, whether it's you know point in time decisions. There are so many things that you put so much more stake in than anyone else ever will. So give yourself a break. And also your passion and your talents will take you in so many directions. And so never feel that there's only one right answer or there's only one door ahead of you. Make sure you pull back the curtain and explore all the possibilities because there really is so much to be offered in this life as a veterinarian, as a human being. And the journey is the point, not the destination. I said there was going to be one more question, but it feels redundant because that feels like just the most perfect point to step off the conversation. (laughs) Molly, thank you so much for your time and your insights. And it's heartening when I look around the profession and I see so many talented, caring people who want to make this place better than they found it, regardless of any of the changes that it's going through it makes me very happy and proud to be part of that, that big thing, this big family. So thank you for sharing a couple hours of your time with us here and your insights and for championing all of the amazing things you do. And, and um, yeah, just a real pleasure to chat to you. Oh, Dave, thank you so much. This was so enjoyable. And it also just brings a lightness to every day when I think about all the people who are working to create an even better future for our profession, you being one of them. So thank you for the chance to talk with you. Thank you. So just me before you guys jump off, wanted to say thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. Wasn't Molly just a brilliant guest? Please show her some love on the socials. Uh, You'll find her at Molls MCDVM. So M-O-L-L-S-M-C-D-V-M. And don't forget to check out today's show sponsor, which was our very own Thrive Community from VetX International. You can find out more about how to boost your career at vetxinternational.com forward slash thrive. Until next time, from all of us on the show, be safe, be well, and be happy.